Hi, this is Sam Genoway. I'm the author of Walt of the Promise of Progress City and the Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide. And you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 101 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering stories from cast members, Imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic and legacy, and inspiring people to live their dreams just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you again to everyone who shared a story or memory for the 100th episode. If you didn't get yours in, or if you've got another one to share, it's not too late. Send it using one of the methods that I'll share after the interview, and I'll happily include it in a listener feedback section on an upcoming episode. This time we return to our regular interview format with Dr. Jeff Barnes, author of The Wisdom of Walt. We recorded this live at Disneyland, again at the Hungry Bear Restaurant. Now, we did have to move from one table to another because of the volume of other guests, but rather than stop and restart the recording, we just take you with us as we move tables. In this episode, Jeff talks about how he became interested in Disney, especially in Disneyland. The moment he fell in love with Disneyland and with the idea of sharing it with others. Why Disneyland doesn't get old to him. What the wisdom of Walt is about and why it needed to be written some of his favorite features of the park that he wrote about in the book, what sets Disneyland apart from other amusement and even theme parks, the observation he made that convinced him he needed to write the book, the Donald Miller book that helped him tweak his story perspective, whether he's a right tunnel person or a left tunnel person, why he needed to be the one to write The Wisdom of Walt, being diagnosed with a brain tumor and how it affected his dream, the best thing about having written the book, why our world needs you to step up, the process of writing the book, the last chapter to have a word written in it, the first one finished, and the one that became a model for all the others, and they're all the same one, the vision he had for the book, and the exact moment he realized this was really going to happen, this book was going to come to be. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. of people are enjoying Disneyland. How does it stay so clean? New in paperback, it's Cleaning the Kingdom, written by former custodians who are now hosts of the Sweep Spot podcast. You can find out the history and the how-to of Disneyland Custodial, also available on Kindle and Nook. Order at www.thesweepspot.com. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. If you've been listening to Stories of the Magic for very long, you may have noticed that I have a particular affinity for authors, possibly because I am one myself. Not just any authors, though. I want to bring you the ones who have something unique to say about Disney. So we've had authors who've written about the details of Disneyland, Disneyland is Walt Walt Disney's third child, the use of the archetypal myth in Disney storytelling, and Disney history, among others. Today's guest has done something quite different. 
There are many biographies about Walt Disney and many books about the theme parks, but very few that explicitly use Walt's life or the Disney parks to draw out truths and lessons that are applicable in one's daily life. In fact, I can count on one hand those authors, one of which happens to be me, by the way. Dr. Jeff Barnes has taken elements of Disneyland and elements of Walt's life and used them to illustrate success in leadership principles and strategies in his book, The Wisdom of Walt, Leadership Lessons from the Happiest Place on Earth. Beyond that, as a higher education administrator and university professor, Jeff teaches a class at California Baptist University in Riverside, California called The History of Disneyland. Known as Dr. Disneyland, he believes, and I agree, that the park teaches us some of life's greatest lessons, as long as you know its history, know what to look for, and you're willing to connect it all to your own story. If there was ever something worth digging into, I'd have to say this is it. So, Jeff, welcome to Stories of the Magic. Thank you, Randy. Pleased to be here this morning. And thank you for joining me in these Stories of the Magic off-site recording studio as we're here once again at the Hungry Bear Restaurant. Oh, darn. I had a reason to get up and come to Disneyland I this know. morning. <laughs> so sorry to have inconvenienced you in this <laughs> way, I know. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. So, we're going to start off really basic here. How did you become interested in Disney, especially in Disneyland? Well, that's sort of an interesting story. I, I grew up in Florida. And when I was 10 years old, we went to Disney World for the very first time. And, you know, like a lot of people, the very first time I stepped onto Main Street, I recognized, even at a very young age, that this was different, this was special, this was, this was magical. And almost instantly, I became that kid throughout middle school and high school, whenever we were going to Disney World, and it didn't matter the reason, I was counting down the days, I was the one most excited to go. And so then fast forward, uh, I'm 25, I, I come out to California to go to grad school, and we make our first trip from the Bay Area down to Southern California, and of course, naturally, we had to include on the itinerary a trip to Disneyland. And to be honest with you, that very first day was a disaster. Uh, we got up on a hot Sunday morning in August. Um, we were quite lazy about getting to the park. We stumbled in around 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the big attraction that year was the uh, brand new Star Tours. And so we uh, found our way into Tomorrowland and we asked a cast member, hey, w where is Star Tours? And the good news was we, of course, were in the right land for the attraction, but in the wrong place for the line. And we were soon redirected back to Main Street, where we would go on to stand in what we soon learned was a three-hour line. And so by the time we had ridden our first Disneyland attraction, uh, it was even hotter, the park was even more crowded, and by the end of the day, if you had said to me, you're going to fall in love with this place so much, you're going to teach a college-level course on the history of Disneyland, you're going to go on to write a book about Disneyland, <laughs> I would have said that you were completely out of your mind. But a couple of years later, I, I was coming back, and I realized, and this is sort of the historian in me, I realized I had to have missed something. And so I started doing the reading, and I started doing the research, and that's when I came to discover, first, you know, Walt didn't just fall out of bed and was born successful. He faced all sorts of obstacles and all sorts of adversities uh, throughout his entire life. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, he didn't just speak the words Disneyland and it magically appear out of the orange groves in Anaheim. Right. And so I really just became fascinated with him as a person and Disneyland really as a, as a goal and as an idea and, and as a dream. And so over the years, it really has become my model, my example, really my inspiration and motivation for all of us following our own dreams and accomplishing our own goals. Okay. So you had that second trip back to Disneyland, or I guess first trip back, second trip to Disneyland. Yes. And from there then, you started to understand more. Yeah, I, yeah I, I came to realize this is the only park that Walt himself ever actually had the opportunity to walk in. Uh, I, I came to appreciate the finer details that only exist in Disneyland. For example, you know, the, the apartment above the fire station on Main Street, mm -hmm. uh, the manner in which the park is, is smaller and, and more intimate, and as a result, I believe, uh, more storybook and, and more charming for those of us who can appreciate it uh, that way. And even such features as, say, the, the, the Casey Jr. Uh, train in Fantasyland or the storybook land uh, canal boat. There are 
there are different aspects of, of Disneyland that don't exist anywhere else in the world. And I still love Disney World in, in Florida, sure. but I believe it was Tony Baxter who, who said it best. Uh, Walt Disney World swallows you, but it's Disneyland that hugs you. And I, I like getting yeah. hugged every now and then. Right. Yeah, it's nice. It really is. So obviously, when you first walked into Walt Disney World, you said you know you walked into the Magic Kingdom, and it was when you stepped on Main Street that you, know, you really fell in love with that place. Was there a moment when you came back to Disneyland that it happened, or was it just your change in perspective that then when you walked to the gate, it was different? Well, I, I think a lot of it was a change in perspective, but on top of that, the young people that I um, w- was bringing on that second trip, they themselves had been a couple of times already, more than I had been. Okay. And uh, because of the reading and the research that I had done, I just sort of immediately began pointing out different elements of the park that as young people, even though they had been here before, they knew nothing uh, about. Right. And that's when it sort of began to resonate with me that, um, you know, I, I have the ability to communicate aspects of Disneyland that a lot of folks, even if they come over and over and over again, often miss or are sort of completely unaware of. And I, and I guess that's not just the historian in me, it's probably the teacher uh-huh. in me a, as well. And so I fell in love with Disneyland, but I think more importantly, I fell in love with the idea of being a tour guide <laughs> at, at Disneyland. And while that hasn't happened, it, at, at least not yet, right. um, teaching that class at California Baptist University in Riverside affords me that very opportunity. We take field trips to the park, and sure enough, I get to you know take large groups of people around and give them a tour of the happiest place on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely relate. I actually got to bring a friend a few years ago, and he said, I want to go to Disneyland with you for the day, and I don't care about the rides. I don't care about the attractions. I just want you to tell me the stories. Yeah. Show me the details, yep. everything like that. We got here. We were on Main Street for an hour and a half, and I realized I should probably stop talking so that we could move on to the rest <laughs> of the park. And I still had probably half again as much as I'd shared yet to go. Yeah. And that was one of the best days that we've ever had because of being able to do that kind yeah. of thing. So I can relate. Two, two years ago, I had a young lady who was probably about 15 at the time who was with us on that Second trip. Second trip for me. I'm not sure which trip it was uh, for her. And she still lives in the Bay Area. And so she called me up and she said, hey, if, if I came down and visited you guys for Christmas, would you take me back to Disneyland? Because for her, that particular trip and that particular day was her favorite memory from her entire childhood. And wow. she, wanted, she wanted me to try and recreate that for her 20 years later. And of course we said yes, and, and we did just that, and you know, we, we loved every, every part of it. And of course, you know, there's been a lot of expansion uh, since then um, to include you know, an entire second park, you know, Disney California Adventure. But um, you know, she remembered fondly that trip uh, from her youth, and again, we reconnected with that 20 years later. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Those kinds of things are so much fun, and you know, it really helps people when they... I, I think after you do something like that, people stop asking, so you're going back to Disneyland? Because then they understand a little bit more how many layers and how much depth it really has. And, yeah, it's um, it's not just an amusement park, and it's not just about thrill rides or roller coasters. You know, Walt wanted this to be an immersive experience, and there are so many levels and so many layers. And you know, part of what I write about in the in the book, you know, Nikki and I have been here now in the last four years, well over two hundred times. And you would think at some point it would, in fact, get old and, and you would tire of it. The truth of the matter is we've actually come to appreciate it even more. Um, first of all, because we come to realize how consistently good it is. Right. And, you know, when you come over and over and over again, it starts to dawn on you, how do they, how do, they do this? You know, they turn this thing over every single day of the year. And, you know, there's, there's no off day and there's no off season anymore. Right. And, and then secondly, we're always sort of challenging ourselves to see something or find something or experience something that we have yet to do. Uh-huh. And uh, sure enough, there, there's always something and there's a lot of fun in that. <laughs> um, okay. 
And I'm sure you'll hear not only the music, but you'll hear some guests in the background, and that's part of being at Disneyland. So we want you to enjoy not just the music, but we also want you to enjoy the experience of being here, which means hearing fellow guests as they walk by or hang out near us, that kind of thing. So just take that in as part of the experience here. Now, it's one thing to be interested in or even obsessed with Disneyland, but there's a pretty large gap between that and writing a book. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the wisdom of Walt. First, what's it about? Well, for the last 20 years, I've had this idea that what it takes to be successful, what it takes to be uh, the hero or the lead character in your own life or your own story... All of that is on display here at at Disneyland. Um, It's just a matter of, again, knowing what to look for, knowing what to pay attention to, and and learning how to apply that uh, to your own life. Now, to be honest with you, Randy, I just sort of assumed that everybody saw it this way, and I just sort of assumed that everybody experienced it that way. And it was really, you know, my wife who who said to me, how, how do you see that? Or, you know, what, what made you think of it, you know, quite like that? Or, wow, I, I could have come here a million times and I would have never connected this with that. Right. And so it was really her voice that helped me to realize that, you know, I was seeing things a, a little bit differently. And there's sort of a line in, in the opening of the introduction uh, that challenges the reader to, quote, unquote, listen to the park. And that really is me listening to my wife, Nikki, who is saying to me, you hear things and you see things at the park that not everyone necessarily does. Right. And so, um, you know, eventually, and we can get into this in a moment, but eventually I, I decided to take what I was seeing and, and what I was hearing and what I was experiencing and, and put it down on paper. And, and lo and behold, we ended up with you know, 18 chapters of lessons and, you know, 333 pages. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, and we're starting to get a few more people there, so I'm going to let this keep recording, but we're actually going to relocate to a slightly different table, which is now in shade. We got here a little bit before rope drop, which this morning was 8 o'clock, and so the sun wasn't really very high in the sky yet, and a lot of the tables here at the Hungry Bear restaurant downstairs were pretty much all still in direct sun, but now more of them are getting to be in shade. So we're moving farther back, back down here to the end of it, closer to my previous office where I recorded with Sam Genoway. So get set up back here, and it's less likely that people are going to come this far back. So you'll still hear some guests, but fewer of them. That's a little bit better now. Okay. Thank you for joining us on that little trip down from one table to another. So you said that when you, uh, you, know, you started doing this because you were realizing that you were seeing and hearing things that other people weren't. Was there a moment that there was a certain one that stood out that you thought, wow, this is really something that I need to communicate more than just as I'm here with people? Well, some of my favorite features uh, that I have the opportunity to write about in the book are, you know, the idea of a berm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the berm is what keeps the magic in and the outside world and the outside distractions out. Uh, Force perspective is one of my favorite features, you know, the idea that, you know, what you think you're seeing isn't exactly what you're, you're seeing. And that gives me the opportunity to talk about how life isn't what happens to you, but it's how we respond to what happens to you. And attitude and perspective, of course, is, is everything. Right. But I think the most important element for me is, is the idea of story. Uh, you know, Walt would go on to say, in spite of all of his successes, what he most wanted to be remembered for was as a storyteller. And those who worked with him will say he was far and away the best storyteller of any of the animators and any of uh, the Imagineers, no one came, you know, anywhere close. And it's that element of story that really sets Disneyland apart from any and all other amusement or even theme parks. It's story that, uh, you know, is, is why he built the first theme park. Uh, story is is why he was willing to sink so much money into a place like Main Street, which, of course, originally you paid general admission and then. 
you know, individual tickets for individual attractions. Well, there was almost no uh, money-generating attractions on Main Street, and that was okay with Walt because he really wanted to use Main Street as the opening shot in the first scene in our story, our experience, or our adventure at Disneyland. And then to take that one step further, you know, Disneyland doesn't have rides, they, they have attractions. Right. And those attractions exist for the purpose of telling some sort uh, of story. And if you go back to opening day, uh, the stories that were best told were found in Fantasyland. And they're still there. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, uh, Peter Pan's Flight. And the idea was each of those different attractions would connect us with very common emotions in a variety of stories. So, for example, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is all about fear and danger. Uh, Peter Pan is about awe and wonder. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which is one of my favorites, is humor and, and comedy. But what's really interesting about that opening day history is, even though we loved Disneyland from the very beginning 60 years ago, when it came to those original Fantasyland dark rides, we were actually a little bit lost because the average guest when they rode Snow White naturally went looking for Snow White. Right. If they were on Peter Pan, they were looking for Peter Pan because they're the heroes, they're the, the lead characters. Well, Walt's vision, which I think is just amazing, and his original intention was that when you're the guest, you're the hero. You are the, the lead character. And so in 1983, when they renovated Fantasyland, they decided to fix the attractions. Really what they decided to do was get rid of all of the guests complaining. And so they put Snow White in Snow White's story. They put Peter Pan in the Peter Pan story. They put Mr. Toad in the, in the Mr. Toad story. And it dawned on me one day that that's great history. It fixes Fantasyland. It doesn't fix our own life. When it comes to our dreams, when it comes to our goals, when it comes to our successes, somebody has to be the hero. Someone has to step up and take the lead. And so what I ask the reader is, if you're not the hero to your own dream, who is? And if you're not going to step up and take the lead now, when are you? And it was sort of that analysis and that observation that helped me to realize, yeah, you really are sort of seeing this at a different level, and there's a there's a pretty powerful message here that you need to get out to as many people as possible. Absolutely, that's a good one. That's one of my favorites, actually. Uh, I know I was listening to uh, Donald Miller talking recently, and he talked about when it comes to businesses, and especially when they're trying to market to people one of the problems that they have is identifying the hero in the story. Mm-hmm. They think that they're the hero. Yep. And they're not. They, they might want to be. Sure. But really, when you look at the overall story structure and archetypal myth, which we talked about uh, several episodes ago here on the show, uh, the business is the guide. And the guest, the customer, is the hero. Absolutely. And so if you can help them see themselves as the hero in their story and you're providing kind of the mentorship or the guiding that moves them, yes. then you know, you've got something. Yeah. You know, now they're going to respond to that message. And it's really amazing how framing things in that terms of story and identifying the hero, and whether it's yourself in your own story or your customer in your marketing or whatever it might be, that's probably one of the most valuable shifts and thinking that people can make, I think. It, it really is. I'm a huge Donald Miller fan, by the way. And in my chapter, Telling Stories, I actually uh, have a couple of Donald Miller quotes. It's his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, uh, that really helped me uh, you know, tweak the perspective that I was using when it came to story. And, you know, you indicated, you know, I I teach history at at California Baptist University. I actually, you know, my doctorate, my PhD is is in New Testament history. And people always think there's like this huge dichotomy between Disneyland and my doctorate. Well, I actually wrote my dissertation on narrative criticism, our story in the Gospels. And so it is the emphasis on story that is the common thread through my story and really the stories of Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really when you think about you know, the way that, especially uh, that Jesus is presented in the Gospels and the things that he did, uh, there's really not much of a leap between New Testament history and 
the history of Disneyland. Uh, you, know, you mentioned the intro to your book. In the intro to Faith in the Magic Kingdom that I wrote, one of the things I said is that when people would come up to Jesus and ask him a question or he wanted to communicate something, the first thing he would do is usually say, let me tell you a story. Yes, absolutely. You know, and so if story is the way that he communicated, maybe there's something to that for the way that we can communicate if we want to get across truth or really make an impact, make a change in someone's life. Yeah. And I think, you know, regardless of whether you're a person of faith or not, mm-hmm. you know, the next time you're standing at the gates of Disneyland, think about Walt himself saying to his public, let me tell you a story. Right. And Disneyland is just that. It's the world's greatest storytelling uh, machine. He wanted to create a way in which he could take the stories that he had been telling by way of the studio and the soundstage in Burbank and you know reproduce that in a real natural 3D sort of environment. Mm-hmm. And you know it, it begins from uh, you know the, the first moments that you step on uh, to Main Street. You know his idea was, and I think a lot of people miss this. Say when they go through the tunnels on either the left or the right. You know his vision there was you're entering into the story by way of the stage, either stage left or stage right. Mm-hmm. And the expectation is. That you're 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 going into the fourth realm. You're stepping through the screen, and literally, as you stand on Main Street, you you are standing in the middle of the world's greatest story. And I just think that's really really powerful. Absolutely. You mentioned the tunnels. I'm curious. Are you a left tunnel person or a right tunnel person? I tend to be a right tunnel person. Uh, if for no other reason, my favorite attraction is Space Mountain, right. and so we're either riding that first or we're getting fast passes for that first. Uh-huh. Um, as you know, and I write about this in the book, uh, I, I still can't ride Space Mountain for another year or so. So I've been more of a left tunnel person uh, during this past year because there's more attractions that I can actually do on the left side of the park these days uh-huh. than on the on the right side. But um, more often than not, I'm, I'm more of a right tunnel person. Okay, interesting. I always like to find out. Uh, I think Sam Genoway was the first one to ask me that question, and so now I always like to find out from people: you know, left tunnel, right tunnel. Well, you know, I kind of knew it was a deal, but the very first time I brought my first History of Disneyland class to the park for a field trip, I, there, there were two issues. The first was we have to be there at seven thirty. There wasn't a single kid in that class who had ever been at Disneyland. For rope drop, right. and uh, there was near mutiny over that issue alone. <laughs> but then, as we were getting ready to enter, half of those students had family traditions of entering in through the right, but the other half had family traditions <laughs> of entering in through uh, the left. And fortunately, I realized this very quickly, or otherwise we could have lost half the group before the tour ever began. <laughs> right. So did you take them through the right tunnel? I did take them through the right tunnel. But again, that was part of the itinerary and and part of the plan in terms of what we were writing first, what we were getting fast passes for first, and, you know, just helped make the day go better. And I promised the left tunnel folks that we would exit out on the left, (laughs) and that sort of assuaged their concerns. Oh, good. I mean, it's funny that that's a thing to us. Uh, Even when we think of it in terms of, well, the attraction I want to ride is on that side. Because you go through the tunnels, which are pretty far apart, but once you get onto Main Street, you're what? Eight, ten feet from where you would have been if you went on the other side? So it really makes no difference. But in our minds and our hearts, it does make a difference. Yeah. Well, and I actually, I I had a student who then went on to be a grad assistant for us. Um, Her tradition was to enter in through the right. Okay, that's fairly common. But the reason why she had to exit out of the left was it was family tradition started by her father that as they exit the park, they stop in front of the main uh, street firehouse and blow a kiss to Walt and thank him for the magic. And naturally, that's a lot easier to do exiting out on the right side or really through stage left uh, than if you're going in the opposite direction. Yeah, that makes sense. That one there is definitely a good reason yes. for. Yeah, pretty much if you want to do that, go to town or go to a town hall, city hall, or go to the opera house. You got a pretty good reason to pick your tunnel. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, so you told me why you thought that this book needed to be written. We kind of touched on this, but I want to see if you can go into any more detail on why was it you that needed to write this book. Well, I don't. I don't know that. Well, first of all, um, I, I've had people ask me, because um, I carry the book with me when I come to the park, and they'll see it and they'll go, wow, where did you find that book? 
And, and my answer, which I have a lot of fun with, is, you know, I actually looked for this book for 20 or 25 years, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And so I finally decided to write it, which, of course, they're not expecting that answer at all because they have no idea that, you know, the person who's holding this book is actually the person who, who wrote this book. Right. Um, but what ended up happening, Randy, was the day after I gave the very first lecture in what I thought then was my dream, which was to teach a college-level course on the history of Disneyland, the day after I gave that very first lecture, I was actually diagnosed with a brain tumor. And this is sort of the, the big conflict, the big adversity in my particular uh, story. And I, I recognized because the neurosurgeon at Cedars-Sinai said to me, you know, it's life-threatening, it needs to come out. Best case scenario, if it's not cancerous, and fortunately it turned out not to be, but best case scenario, because, you know, we are going to have to do a craniotomy, you'll be back to work in six to eight weeks. Well, six to eight weeks meant no class. Six to eight weeks meant, you know, wipe it off the schedule, probably never to be seen or, or heard from a, again. Right. And so I stood my ground. I, I, I planted my sword, and I said to the neurosurgeon, sorry, not going uh, to happen. And, of course, he wanted to know, well, what are you doing that's so important that you're willing to put off brain surgery and, in turn, risk your own life? And I told him that, you know, I was a university professor and I had class this summer. And then, of course, he wanted to know, well, what class are you teaching <laughs> yeah. that, again, is so important you're willing to put off brain surgery and risk your own life? And to be honest with you, when I told him history of Disneyland, I thought he was going to kill me long before the tumor ever <laughs> had, a, had a chance. But it, it was in that moment in the doctor's office that I came to recognize this was bigger than a crazy thought or a nagging idea, maybe even bigger than a dream. This was a passion that at that moment I was willing to lay down my life for. And so last fall, when we were healthy again and we knew that it wasn't cancerous and I was starting to, to go back to work at least part-time, you know, I said to my wife, Nikki, I said, um, you know, it's, it's great that I got to teach the class and it's great that, you know, the surgery ten, turned out okay and it looks like I'm going to be here for a, a while longer. You know, my only real regret is I've, I've never written that book that mm -hmm. I've had this idea for for, you know, a couple of decades now. And Nikki being the, the great uh, supporter and, you know, helper that she is, she, she looks at me and she says, well, you know, if you're 51 and that's your only regret, you're, you're doing better than most folks. <laughs> that's true. And and then she said, okay, well, what would it take to, to, to do that as well? And so we got, we got serious about, okay, um, you're not going to be around here for forever. You think you've got this great idea. Either do it or don't. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do it. And now here we are, you know, a year later, and, you know, the dream is real. Uh, you know, we're inside Disneyland, uh, and, you know, about once a week I get to bring the wisdom of Walt, quote-unquote, home, uh, if you will. And uh, it's opened up so many doors and, and, and so many opportunities. But I think the best part about this experience is the feedback that I get from readers. Uh, you know, time and time again I get a Facebook message. I get an email. I get a letter from someone who's read The Wisdom of Walt, and they start off with thank you, and they talk about how the stories in the book do in fact connect with their own story. And there's some dream, there's some crazy idea or nagging thought that they've been putting off, and then they go on to share with me, you know, how they've, uh, you know, begun a nursing program, even though they're 60 years old, and they realize, you know, just like Disneyland would never be finished, and Walt said, you know, there always needs to be a next, uh, they realized they weren't finished, and they'd had this dream of going to nursing school, and they read the book, and so now they've started, or, you know, I had someone else who had this crazy idea for a trademark and a copyright that involved his book and his idea in conjunction with Universal and the Minions, and... Oh, okay. He had been putting that off for, you know, two, three, four years, and he got halfway through the wisdom of Walt, and he said, darn it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And uh, three days later, he got permission to do what he had been putting off for three or four years. And so as an author, when you hear those sorts of stories, you, you, you realize, again, like you were saying, I, I'm not the hero. And, and the book isn't the hero either. It's the readers that are the heroes. And hopefully 
uh, the book really just serves as a guide and a motivation and an inspiration for us to get started on living that great story that we all dream about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so you decided to write this with very good reasons and decided that you were going to do it since nobody else had. And, you know, I think it seems like that's kind of the motivation for a lot of us that write these books is there's the book I want to read and nobody else has written yeah. it, so I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if there's a book that you want to read and you can't find it, write it. At least give it a try. Yeah. What have you got to lose? Yeah, I, I believe you have those ideas for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walt had an idea for a place where parents and children could have fun together for a reason. And imagine for just a moment what our world would look like without Disneyland. Um, he had enough courage to take action on his dreams. And uh, what I would say to the listeners, and very same thing I say to the readers, um, our world needs you to step up. Our world needs you to be heroic around that dream and around that idea that only you have. Right. Absolutely. So what was the process? Like, how did you approach writing it? I think maybe you had a little bit of a head start because you developed a curriculum for the class that maybe helped this direction. But, like, how did you go about putting (laughs) these ideas on paper? Well, what I did, uh, first of all, I, I came to recognize I couldn't do it by myself. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I could, it would have been done already, <laughs> quite frankly. Right. And so we invested a little bit of money into a, a writing coach. Okay. And the advice that he gave me was, uh, first of all, take these lessons, uh, take these success principles, take these leadership ideas, and, and write them down. And, and you need anywhere from 15 to 25 of them. And so I, I, I came up with, with 20 uh, initially. Okay. And uh, then he had me sort of storyboard that. And I felt a little bit like, you know, an Imagineer building an attraction when he had me storyboarded. Uh-huh. And he had me come up with X number of stories about either Walt Disney and or the park, which I naturally had because of my own reading, research, teaching the History of Disneyland class. Right. And then um, X number of stories, you know, about myself in terms of connecting it to... Uh, you know, our own story and how, uh, you know, the readers could see that through my own eyes and my own experiences. Mm -hmm. I worked on that for about two weeks last November. And then finally, uh, on the morning of November 22nd, which ironically enough happens to be the anniversary of Walt himself flying over the property in Central Florida that would one day become Disney World. Right. At about 3.43 on the morning of November 22nd, I'd had enough uh, with creating chapters and I'd had enough with storyboarding. I, I, I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. It was sort of bursting out of me. And the other tip that he gave me was, he said, once you start writing, give yourself a writing diet. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay. And then once you put pen to paper, whatever your writing diet is, you, you don't stop, you don't go back, you don't edit, you don't rewrite, you don't correct, you just keep moving forward. And I had sort of stopped and started, stopped and started multiple times before but I wanted every word to be perfect, every sentence to be perfect, every paragraph to be perfect, every page to be perfect. And as a result of that sense of perfection, I got absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so the writing diet that I, uh, that I took was to write a minimum of 333 words every single day. And I wrote those 333 words, no, no less ever, um, and on many days more, mm-hmm. but I, I never went back. I never worked on editing or correcting or rewriting because I knew, or at least he was teaching me, that writing isn't writing. Writing is rewriting. And you can't rewrite what you haven't written. So he just wanted me to write a manuscript, and and we would go from there. And sure enough, it it worked. Okay. That's a really interesting approach. He's right. It kind of makes sense in retrospect, but you don't think about it maybe on the front side of it that you can't rewrite something that you haven't written yet. Yeah. Um, so you said that you originally came up with 20 mm-hmm. principles. You've got 18 chapters. Yes. What did you cut? Or did you merge? I merged. Okay. Um, there were a couple of chapters that ended up being um, merged. And to be honest with you, I'm not even sure I remember what those two are. Hmm. Um, I know one of them got folded into uh, 
uh, creating e-ticket experiences, okay. and the other one got folded into taking care of your team. But I don't really remember exactly what they were. Um, but then, ironically enough, um, another chapter entitled Detailing Your Destiny, uh-huh. um, I didn't write from beginning to middle to end. I, I wrote wherever I thought I had 333 words that day. Right. Uh, I was just trying to live to write another day, if you will, and I knew I needed 333 words today so that I could write 333, ways, 333 words the, the next day. So wherever I thought I had a story, wherever I thought I had a lesson or a principle, that's where I wrote that day. Okay. And the very last chapter that ever had a single word written is the detailing your destiny chapter. Well, oddly enough, it's also the very first chapter, which is somewhere in the middle of the book. It's the very first chapter that was actually completed from beginning to end, even though it was the last one that actually had words written to it. At that particular point, I was sort of thinking that it was probably going to get folded or disappear like those couple of others did. Uh And then, um, strangely enough, it ends up being not only the first completed chapter, but really the model for what all of the other chapters ended up being as well. And and what I mean by that, we're we're about halfway through the book in terms of word count at this point. Okay. Because the book is, I think, about 67,000 words, and we're somewhere around 31, 32,000 words at this point. Okay. And what I came to realize was, okay, every single chapter is starting with a story from the park. Mm -hmm. And then we're telling something about Walt and, and his life, and then there is typically an anecdotal story about me or me and Nikki or you know me and Nikki and the kids, uh-huh. and then there's whatever the lesson is, and then there's this application that I decided to call the souvenir stop because it's what you take home, it's you know what you're supposed to apply after you're done with the chapters and done with the book. And then at the end of each chapter, we sort of come back to the beginning just like you come back to Main Street by way of another story from the park. And once I realized that that chapter had a model or an example that I really, really liked, I then simply applied it to all of the other chapters. And very quickly I came to realize, okay, this chapter has this, this, and this, but it's missing that. And so the last half of the book got written a lot quicker because I now had a model or an example to follow. And so I immediately knew what I had and, more importantly, what I didn't have, and I could then write accordingly. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really good model. It's a really good approach, I think. It seems like a lot of books either have kind of one or the other, but not both as far as the application or... Uh, kind of lining out the principles but it seems like not a lot have not only the application but a place to actually in the book write down what you're going to do yeah I wanted to be this I I wanted the book to be uh, as practical as possible and so you know the vision was really twofold Uh, first of all it's very narrative driven I, I didn't want this to be another corporate or business style Disney book there's a lot of great ones out there And yes, it's leadership lessons from the happiest place on earth, but I didn't really want to follow that example because it's really already been been done, and I didn't really feel like I had a lot to add to any of that. Um, I wanted, like the park itself, to be very story-driven. And then secondly, uh, with the the souvenir stops, again, connecting Walt's life, connecting what we see, what we experience from the parks to our own story. Mm -hmm. And the key to all of that is, and we heard it when we were standing there waiting for rope drop this morning, the PA announcer says Disneyland is the place where dreams come true. And of course, we all love that line, but I happen to believe that all of us have an even bigger dream than just going to Disneyland. And so I want to use Disneyland as that model and that example for going after your dreams and living, again, the best story possible. And so in all of the souvenir stops, we take the stories, we take the lesson, and we challenge the reader to apply them in the most practical and applicable ways possible. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I was going to ask something, so I, and I don't remember what it was now, but I should have probably written it down while you were talking. <laughs> but we might come back to it, because I thought of it a couple of times. Uh, but in the meantime, as you were going through this whole 
process of writing and rewriting and everything. When I think for all of us, when we start writing, we think, right now I just want to get the words down. I hope this turns into something. Yeah. Well, do you remember a point where you realized this is going to happen? This yes. is actually going to be a, a- book. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question. Uh, because telling the story of how the book came to be is a story that I love to talk about, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, you know, again, I had sort of those perfectionist tendencies that I needed, you know, a writing coach to help me get over. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, um, my daughter who is uh, 25, is an investigative journalist in Las Vegas, a phenomenal writer. And she didn't think I really needed to hire a writing coach at all. And the analogy that I used with her was, okay, you're probably right. I, I, I probably am a good enough writer to do this on my own. But again, if it were going to happen on my own, it would have happened already. Uh-huh. And so my writing, my writing coach really became Dumbo's feather. Dumbo always could fly, but he needed the feather to convince him that he could fly. Right. And so once I gave her that analogy, she was like, okay, Dad, I get it. You know, <laughs> so she appreciated that. Uh-huh. And um, when I actually started writing, first of all, I, I hated it because I've got this idea that's been percolating for 20 years, and what was coming out on paper wasn't this great idea that's been in my head for 20 years. It, it just wasn't translating. But I didn't get, I didn't give up, even though I was really, really frustrated. I just kept moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, it, and again, about halfway through, um, we, we, we come up with a chapter detailing your destiny where I'm like, wow, this, this works. This, this is a model. This is an example. We, uh-huh. we can lay this on every other chapter. We might actually have something here. And then immediately after I finished that chapter, I then got to work on the introduction because if that was going to be the model, I then realized, okay, you can sort of give a heads up to the reader in the intro about exactly what they're you know, going to be looking for and exactly what they're going to be uh, experiencing. And so right. the introduction is entitled, To All Who Read uh, This Happy Book. And so Saturday afternoon, about a week or so after I've written detailing uh, your destiny, I'm banging out this this introduction, and at the very end I say this, please don't let, set your souvenirs on a shelf or allow them to disappear in a forgotten drawer. I believe it is possible to live every day as if it's a day at Disneyland. It isn't always easy, too often the real world is filled with more problems than pixie dust. My advice, listen to the park. Walt envisioned Disneyland to be, quote, a live, breathing thing. And like any person, the park has its own personality. It has stood the test of time. Its history and story speak to anyone who will listen. Open your heart, and you might discover the wisdom of Walt and his magic kingdom. And then it ends with these words, Mickey Mouse ears not required. And when I tied Mickey Mouse ears not required into listen to the park, that's when I knew I had something. That's when I knew that the so-called muse had showed up uh-huh. and that this could actually turn into something really special. Okay. I don't know about anybody listening, but I got chills when you said that. So I have a feeling that probably some others did too. That, that's great. I love being able to pick that out. Yeah. And I remembered what I was going to ask before too. Great. Uh, That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Jeff Barnes for being my guest and to you for listening. Next week, we'll continue with more stories from Jeff and Wisdom of Walt. Rather than our usual sponsor message this time, I'd like to ask for your help supporting a great and worthy cause. As you probably know, especially if you've been listening to this show for a while, I'm a runner. I run first for myself and what it does for me. I run second for my family so I can be healthy for them, especially now that I have a daughter. What you may not know is that third, I run for others, to raise money for causes and organizations that I care deeply about. More than half of the races I run every year, I do in support of worthwhile causes. On the weekend of January 15th to the 17th, 2016, I will run 22.4 miles for Team Muscle Makers for UCMD. Yes, I'm running a 5K, a 10K, and a half marathon, all in support of this important cause. Team Muscle Makers for Ulrich's Congenital Muscular Dystrophy's mission is to raise awareness for UCMD. Ulrich's Congenital Muscular Dystrophy is a rare form of muscular dystrophy with only a few hundred documented cases worldwide. 
because it is so rare, these people, who are afflicted soon after birth, may often not get the help they need and have little hope for a cure because it's not a big-name disease and gets overlooked. As a team, it is our goal to raise money for the research for new treatments and one day a cure for UCMD. To do this, we run. My fundraising goal is pretty hefty, $1,200. But it's more than just a goal. It's a necessity. You see, if I don't raise at least this much, I will not be able to participate at all. This is my fundraising requirement. I'm doing the training. I'm getting up early, running in heat, cold, rain, whatever, icing sore muscles, sometimes limping for a couple of days. But without help, all that will be for nothing. I'm also funding a part of this goal, at least a third of it myself. I need you to partner with me though, and the sooner the better. I actually have to have about half of that raised within just the next couple of weeks. I should have started asking for help earlier, but with having a new baby at home and things, it just honestly got away from me, and so now I'm really kind of down to the wire here on this first part that I need to get in there. So if you're willing to partner with me on any amount, please go to storiesofthemagic.com slash TMM. That's slash TMM for Team Muscle Makers. All it takes, if everybody listening just supported me $5, I'd be over the... Uh, the requirement. I'd have all that I needed and a bit more. We're making muscles one mile at a time. Thank you for your support. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, created a website, you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, then I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, Parks and Resorts, Cruise Line, Alani, the movies, ABC, anything, and you want to share or give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you, too. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like in this case, a link to be able to buy Jeff's book. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest. Tell your friends about the show. Let others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.